and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast series. We aim to share story and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Velo Lotus Vu, and I'd like to welcome you to our guest for today's episode, Professor David Lukoff. Today, we will be discussing spiritual emergency and spiritual and religious competency in psychology. Professor Lukoff has been the proponent and co-author of the DSM-4 section on spiritual and religious problem. He's been researching in the area of spiritual and religious problem and spiritual emergencies for more than 30 years. He's not only a researcher, clinician, but also had personal experience in this matter. I'm very excited to have Dr. Lukoff on our show. Let's get into today's conversation. So what really got you into researching about this area of spiritual and religious problems? Well, um, like many things in healthcare, I was triggered by a, a personal experience. I, I should have said in mental health because there are many other psychologists, but I've also met nurses and psychiatrists who, whose uh, journey to becoming a mental health professional was triggered by a personal experience, the concept of the wounded healer. Um, so that's where my uh, involvement started. In fact, uh, prior to this experience that I'll share, um, I would have described myself as an atheist, uh, an agnostic, and there's still touches of my belief system which relate to that, but I'm also uh, a, a spiritual seeker. I'm very interested now at this point in my life and have been since this experience in my early 20s, very interested in spirituality and particularly spiritual practices. I have uh, had a meditation practice for many years. I've done Aikido and Tai Chi for 40 years. Um, I dabble in things like yoga. Um, uh, there's a lot of interest now in psychedelics and that has been part of my interest throughout my life. So. Prior to this experience, I had none of those interests. So the experience was um, triggered really by a kind of existential crisis. I was a graduate student at Harvard in anthropology. And uh, I was 23 years old and got my master's degree. I skipped the year in high school and stuff like that and just went directly from high school to college to graduate school and all of a sudden I had the realization you know that I had lived an incredibly sheltered life my parents are both uh, PhDs I'd always been around universities I'd gone immediately to college and immediately to graduate school and I I really had this existential crisis around I didn't know who I was. I didn't know anything about the world. And I uh, very precipitously dropped out of Harvard. <laughs> so you were searching for something, for some meaning. Oh, yes. I, at least I knew what I didn't know. I didn't know anything else. I didn't know. I didn't have any real hobbies. I didn't have a desire to see Asia or climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I had no, you know. I've been such a student all my life, I had never developed anything outside of that. So I did what I could do, which was uh, drop out, 
get rid of everything I owned that wouldn't fit into a backpack. And I just started hitchhiking around the United States and up into Mexico, uh, Canada and down into Mexico a little bit. Um, and then, oh gosh, I, it was about six months later, I ended up in San Francisco. And just while I was walking around Golden Gate Park, somebody offered me a tab of LSD. And I had never done a psychedelic drug. Um, but I, and I really wasn't that interested in them. But I thought, well, you know, the whole point of this uh, was to experience things I had never experienced. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I took the tab from him. I didn't take it right now. I waited until the next day. And I took it on an empty stomach, which is, you know, the way you're supposed to do these things, not just gulp it down. Um, and I started to walk around Golden Gate Park. And I was just blown away. All of a sudden, when I looked at a tree, I felt like I was seeing the tree breathing. Mm. And I, I would I walked over to the tree and just started to touch it and almost hugged it. I mean, stuff I'd never ever done in my life. And um Golden Gate Park is on the Pacific Ocean. Mm. And I went over to the beach there and I just watched the waves coming in and I was part of the wave and the wave was coming in me and then I was becoming part of the wave. And you know, again, you know. Now I would, when I hear this, it's sort of, oh, that's a classic mystical experience. But uh, for me but, then- But then back then, if, if you told that to a psychiatrist, they would have said that you had a manic uh, psychotic episode? Is that likely? <laughs> well, this whole experience, uh, not just that one part, but what unfolded from this uh, would have been diagnosed as a manic episode. That's right. But um, as a result of that, I, I mean, I kind of thought, well, that's an interesting experience, but you know, it didn't change my life. I might do it again someday or whatever. But then what happened was I woke up, uh, it was actually a few days later, four days later, and just to go to the bathroom at night in an apartment I was crashing in. And all of a sudden I looked in the mirror and I saw my hand was like glowing white and i was holding it i don't know is this a video or audio it's it's both <laughs> what so it's both <laughs> okay so i was holding my hand in this position a mudra uh i didn't know it was called a mudra and all of a sudden i thought oh that's a sign that i'm a reincarnation of buddha mm -hmm. and then i thought it was a reincarnation of christ mm -hmm. and then i had the idea that I was on a new mission to create a holy book for the entire world. Buddha had created, you know, a religion for the East and Christ had created a religion for the West. And I, my mission was to create a universal global religion. So at this point, yes, I would have been diagnosed as having a manic episode or being in a manic episode. <laughs> with with uh, an element of grandiosity, I said. <laughs> yes, grandiose delusions. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, I sat down right then and there, took out, a, I had a journal I was keeping in my backpack mm -hmm. and I started to write my new holy book mm -hmm. and I did it in five days with hardly any sleep, uh, you know, eating a couple bags of peanuts and stuff. I just scribbled and scribbled and wrote my holy book. And then 
I made copies of it and started to distribute it to people. I literally walked around Berkeley and gave copies of this to people and I mailed it to friends and family and stuff. Um, okay, so uh, I would say, and I have met many people who've had similar experiences to this, who ended up in a psychiatric hospital, ended up on medication and stuff like that. And I was really lucky because I had friends who uh, took, you know, let me stay with them, um, fed me. Uh, I was never out in the streets. Um, and uh, that went on for two months. And I was just assuming that I had written this holy book. I'd given copies of it. They would travel around the world. People would pass it on and on and on to their friends and friends of friends and so on. And so all I needed to do was wait a little bit and I would be recognized as having founded this new religion and everything would happen from there. So um, after two months of being allowed to continue in this and now um, I think it's very rare because most people in having my experiences would get medicated and such. And that's one of the reasons why I've done things like write articles on my experience. I've written case studies. I published four other case studies of people who've had experiences similar to my own. Uh, I put up a video on YouTube on spiritual crises. Also, it's kind of like maps, you know, for people who are experiencing these kinds of unusual experiences mm -hmm. and then want to uh, explore them, understand them. Um, and sometimes there are people who have been medicated and hospitalized and when they get out, still are very curious about what happened to them. And sometimes there are people having these experiences because the internet is wonderful. You can start putting in search terms and, and you come across stuff that's relevant right. to this concept of spiritual emergencies. Okay, so what you experience was a spiritual emergency or is it a spiritual emergence? Could you tell me the difference between the two? Well, mine would definitely be in the emergency category. It is a spectrum. Um, but if I hadn't had friends taking care of me, um, I had, you know, I didn't have any means of supporting myself. I didn't think I needed money or a job or anything like that. I just, you know, I just created a new global religion. <laughs> so, uh, you know, other people in my condition, um, are in a real crisis. They're in an emergency. Mm. Uh, and if somebody doesn't rescue them or help them, um, they're going to end up in the streets. Uh, people who are having these experiences who end up in the streets are likely to get abused, uh, robbed, beaten up. Yes. Uh, they wouldn't have any way to get food. Yeah. They, they'd end up, you know, all kind of in jails so 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 would you say a spiritual emergency is when a person gets these experience and are completely out of touch with reality as in regular functioning of everyday life exactly right it's it's both you know uh not being part of consensual reality and understanding things or having these beliefs that you're a messiah or something like that or mm -hmm something special but um yes it's the major issue in terms of it being a crisis because those beliefs are benign people have all mm -hmm. kinds of religious beliefs but um 
being unable to support yourself in our society. We, you know, you know, in traditional societies, people who have these kinds of experiences and even including schizophrenia do much better because they're part of a family, they're part of a community, everybody knows them. They, they go talking about God a lot or they talk about the spirits or whatever, but no big deal. You know, they live in the community and here they get isolated um, and, you know, can become homeless and, and things like that. So that's the emergency end. The emergence end is also um, not well, uh, I was going to say not well understood, but that's not really true. They are pretty well understood. They're just, the knowledge is not communicated as part of traditional mental health training. Mm -hmm. And in fact, much of my work now has transitioned from spiritual emergencies to spiritual competencies mm -hmm. because mental health professionals need to know about more about uh, the role spirituality plays in their clients' lives. And that's certainly true with a spiritual emergency because you, you need to be able to talk about these experiences. And mental health professionals, I don't know about your program, but any traditional program, the vast majority of them do not delve into religious and spiritual issues. And I was literally told in my graduate training that if a client brought up a religious or a spiritual issue, we were to refer them to a religious professional, send them to a priest or a minister or a rabbi or a mom, because you as a psychologist are not competent to talk with them about it. And that is absolutely true. We are, we, I was not competent because the school didn't include religious and spiritual issues in this curriculum. So now I'm involved in a task force at the American Psychological Association uh, to get uh, spiritual competency recognized as one of the uh, uh, elements of diversity that every psychologist needs to be trained in. And uh, my colleagues and I, Cassandra Veaton, uh, and I have published three articles on spiritual competency, and we have one coming out now in the American psychologist which is the american psychological association's flagship journal and it's on this concept of spiritual competency so even dealing with spiritual emergence most mental health professionals are really ill-prepared uh, they may have personal spiritual beliefs although a much higher percentage of psychologists are atheists and agnostics mm -hmm. but uh, even the religious ones would you know if if they're Christian and the client comes in with, you know, starting to talk about meditation, mm -hmm. mindfulness, you know, maybe they started a mindfulness practice and they're having trouble sleeping because mm -hmm. sometimes mindfulness can induce things like uh, insomnia or anxiety or depression. I mean, you know, in the research shows that they're really beneficial, but people can at times, you know, it can allow them to become more aware of inadequacies or conflicts mm. or something like that. So um, that's part of the mindfulness practice. A good mindfulness teacher would be fully prepared to talk with them about it. But if you brought that issue to a psychologist or a counselor, 
probably not because they haven't been trained in this. And yet, you know, there high, you know, many people are now experimenting with yoga, tai chi. Would you, but there, there are a lot of them are experiencing this. Uh, I mean, doing this not in a religious context or a spiritual context. They're just doing it for mental health or relax or things like that. Uh, would you say an atheist would have a spiritual emergency experience as well? Well, I was an atheist when I had mine, and I think that's not uncommon. That some, for many people, a spiritual awakening is a crisis because it's so opposed to all the rational uh, types of perspectives that they've had in their life. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it can be very jarring. And uh, somebody experiencing that, like uh, some kind of spiritual awakening, even if they're maintaining a job and you know, going to school, have a relationship and so on, it can be very, uh, you know, disconcerting to all of a sudden be entertaining ideas diametrically opposed to everything you've believed before. So uh, they may, people like that might very well seek out a therapist to talk to them. But my point is that therapists are inadequately trained to even deal with these kinds of issues. So that is my focus now. Right. Uh, so how do you think that therapists could be adequately trained about this issue. And we also talked about our modern society that does not really uh, address these kind of experiences that traditional societies had uh, the context for, uh, which in our modern society, we don't have a context for. So that really factors in another factor, which is the multiculturalism, because we're, we're seeing people from all different cultures with existing ancient societies, cultural practices, that may challenge our current present, uh, you know, way of standards and way of living, and 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 how we perceive it normal here in in, in North America. Yeah. Um, well, actually, that the work of my colleagues and I has been to try to define exactly what are the kinds of training needs to make. Uh, psychologists more spiritually competent mm -hmm. and uh, we uh, conducted a, a four phase study starting with just a thorough review of the literature that was phase one then we brought together real experts in the area to brainstorm and come up with these competencies and then two rounds of validating them in the larger profession. Um, so those are the articles on spiritual competency. If you put spiritual competency into PubMed or PsychInfo, these articles will come up. And we ended up with 16 core spiritual competencies. And uh, the first one is a gateway into this, which is to learn how to conduct a spiritual assessment. Mm -hmm. you know, how to conduct any kind of intake interview around the issue of spirituality. We're, we're, as psychologists, we're trained in how to do a social history, work history, uh, treatment history, uh, and so on, but we're not trained in how to do a mm -hmm. spiritual assessment. So the first, that's one of the first 
skills. Uh, and actually, it's the most important because if you can have a conversation with a client, even if the client is doing something you've never done, you know, uh, um, I had a client who is whose family practiced voodoo, which is, you know, a religion that's a combination of Christianity, indigenous religions of the Native Americans. It has African elements. It's a real amalgam. So I, I didn't know anything about it. So I, I had a, you know, I did a little research about it and I had my client. I said, oh, I don't really know much about the voodoo religion. Tell me about it. What have you done in your rituals and how does that work in your community? You know, you, that's fine to be ignorant as long as you know how to have a respectful conversation with a client about these topics. So how to conduct a spiritual assessment is something I've now even developed a an online course on. Um, if you Googled spiritual assessment, my name, I'm sure the course would come up uh, and it's free. Um, so anybody can take this course and get mm -hmm. some training in how to conduct a uh, spiritual assessment. And then there are many other skills. Um, I think it is worthwhile for psychologists to spend some time learning about the wide range of religious and spiritual practices and traditions. Um, even though, you know, you have to be prepared for lots, you're not going to know much about it as part of your work, but it's good to have some foundational knowledge. Um, also to know um, what religious and spiritual problems along that whole spectrum, you know, so you don't pathologize somebody's experiences that might be uh, out of the ordinary, but, you know, hearing, uh, you know, uh, feeling like there's an angel watching over you uh, can sound psychotic, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's a belief system that many people in our culture hold. Um, Near-death experiences, which, you know, in our very sophisticated medical treatment system now close to five percent of people have a near-death experience mm. i mean that's a lot of people yeah. and for many of them it is uh, disconcerting challenging they may have these experiences of you know um, seeing angels seeing dead relatives floating up through a tunnel of light and so on and actually people used to be treated if they had that experience at an icu there was a protocol to give them antipsychotic medication. Wow. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that's come out of this DSM category is a greater appreciation in ICUs for uh, the validity of uh, near-death experiences. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so it's actually recognized as a phenomenon that is, that is valid uh, experience yes. that people go through. That's not a psychosis. Correct. It's being, uh, there's a literature now that did not exist before the DSM category, specifically about uh, uh, near-death experiences as a type of religious or spiritual problem. Okay. The, 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 this brings me to, like, say it's for the average person, if they started to experience these kind of experiences. And I spoke to one person and she said her 
most major regrets is she started discussing this experience with her family and they brought her to the hospital <laughs> and got her committed. And, and uh, you know, the whole experience could have been something that was very positive for her, but it turned out very traumatizing. Yeah. Well, in some of the case studies that I've published, that is exactly also what happened. That the person's family, instead of talking with them about it, maybe even suggesting, hey, you know, that might be a good thing to talk to a therapist about. Instead, they took him to a psychiatric hospital. Um, so, you know, part of the role of getting this literature out there and these YouTube things is, is to give people alternative perspectives on these experiences. So for people who are not very aware of these kind of things, or even therapists who haven't been trained, how do you tell the difference between a religious spiritual experience and a run-of-the-mill psychosis? Um, well, I, I have written articles on this. I'll, I'll try to give a, a very, very brief overview of it. But there are some very good clues. First of all, many of these experiences have a structure that is recognizable. We've just been talking about near-death experiences. Mm. Uh, my kind of experience would be in the category of a mystical type experience. Um, so there are uh, a number of these that are out there in the, in the literature, uh, out-of-body experiences and so on. Uh, there's at least nine or 10 of these definable kinds of ex non-ordinary experiences that people have that a therapist should recognize. Oh, that's a lot like you know, a shamanic initiatory crisis or something. Um, second is you can look at the prognostic factors. There are several that have been shown in research to predict a positive outcome. So if the person was working, uh, being able to uh, graduate, you know, high school and take other classes, uh, if they had a have had a history, even if they don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend at the present. Um, you know, do they have a history of having relationships? Those are all uh, also, what is their attitude about their experience? Are they more paranoid, you know, thinking people are trying to harm them, uh, persecute them, steal their thoughts, suck their blood out of them? Those, those are not part of the usual spiritual emergency um you know are they more curious like wow i've never had these thoughts before mm -hmm. what you know what is this about you know how can i this is puzzling to me you know if they have a curious positive attitude toward their experiences that's also a good prognostic indicator so those there are several things like that that uh you know you Usually when a person does a diagnosis, they're not looking at prognostic mm. factors. That's not part of the DSM. Mm. But um, here, to do an adequate assessment and diagnosis, you do need to look at those pre-existing factors. Oh, okay. So that, that would be the starting point uh, as indicators for 
someone to look into this sort of thing. And I do see that uh, therapists and psychologists uh, and psychiatrists needs to look into these sort of things further instead of just classifying it as just your run-in-the-mill psychosis because they don't understand. Right. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your work in the recent uh, uh, times in the presence in getting these spiritual competencies, uh, you know, kind of out there because you you work really hard to get this into the DSM four and co-authored that section. Uh, since then, what, what where do you see where we could go with this, and uh, you know, what is the outcome you sort of uh, kind of envision? Uh, for the future in, in your work uh, with this, this area? Yeah, well, as I uh, mentioned, my work really has transitioned uh, to this area of spiritual competency. Um, and uh, we are right now, you know, getting into the, like, the politics of it. <laughs> in other words, to get something accepted like into the DSM, it, it isn't enough to just write articles. Yeah. Uh, I'll give my colleague uh, Francis Liu credit because uh, he did a lot of the politicking uh, for this diagnostic category, um, partly because he's a psychiatrist, I'm a psychologist, and the DSM is written by the American Psychiatric Association. But he got people to, within the American Psychiatric Association who were uh, on a, there's a group there on cultural uh, sensitivity. There's a, a American Psychiatric Association group on um, religion and, and psychiatry. So he, he networked with them to get this new category into the DSM. And we are now kind of doing a similar version of that kind of stuff to get spiritual competency recognized within the American Psychological Association mm -hmm. as a core competency for all uh, psychologists. And so what we're writing right now um, is a, a what's called practice guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, there are, APA has, I think about 15 sets of them. Some are on ethnicity. LGBTQ issues, you know, they, they, they have uh, uh, specific guidelines in a number of areas. So we are now in the process of writing guidelines on spiritual competency, but it isn't enough to just write them. They actually have to be accepted by the American Psychological Association's uh, Board of Representatives. We have a, a like a congressional system with a legislative body that has to accept it. So that means we have to do a bunch of politicking in this area. And I mentioned that we have an article coming out in the American Psychologist. And that's an example of it. We really, really worked, Cassandra Beaton and I, to get this article into the this very, you know, prestigious journal, specifically to give our proposal for guidelines more impact, more clout, because it was published, you know, we published several research articles on it. Now we publish this article in the American Psychologist. That is really moving, you know, this, the, the goal forward 
of uh, getting this recognized as an important part of what psychologists need to know. Mm, that's that's excellent. So I understand that the, even when people are see themselves as atheists, a lot of people are actually see themselves as spiritual, looking for meanings in life as well. Uh, so, how, what, according to your research, what is the percentage of people out there that that sees this kind of thing as a very important part of their life? Well, it's interesting that um, there is a, a change. I don't, there's some uh, very good surveys done by the Pew P E W uh, Foundation, and they're all up online. They have a great website with lots of this kind of information, showing that the percentage of people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious has just exploded. It's gone up from like seven or eight uh, percent 20 years ago to like 12, 13 percent 10 years ago to 23 percent in the latest Pew survey. And amongst millennials, it's a majority who say that they are spiritual but not religious. Um, so that's really been a change. And I don't know if Pew included Canada in their surveys or just the United States. It may be only the United States. I don't know how different it would be in Canada. But um, in the United States, the percentage of people who are unaffiliated with any church has also been increasing. Um, now, still, you know, when you compare the United States to other countries, um, it's still a fairly religious country when you compare it to, say, the UK or France or Germany. Um, way more Americans are involved with a religious group. Um, but it's still, the trend is, is in this direction of more spirituality. And... Um, and people are, you know, often combining them. They may go to church, but they have a yoga practice. And it isn't just, you know, like an exercise. They, they like the uh, uh, philosophy of uh, acceptance and peace and namaste and so on. So, so they're actually getting, you know, influenced by the uh, belief system of uh, the practice. And that's true with mindfulness, too. Mindfulness... John Kabat-Zinn, you know, converted meditation, which was a Buddhist or and or Hindu practice, um, into mindfulness, which is secular. But other people uh, have now brought some of the philosophy of Buddhism into uh, uh, mental health through things like ACT or dialectical behavior therapy. Yes. They include some of the concepts that really come from the meditation tradition, things like acceptance, mm -hmm. things like watching your thoughts, be an observer. You can secularize that too. But my point is they're, they're pulling more and more from these practices that, have, that are uh, spiritual in their origins. But I understand that these practices has a context uh, in in their in the culture and in the religion that they came from that where people practice. But the people right now, a lot of people are just practicing these 
sort of, I call it esoteric practices. Not everybody, even in those religions, practice these practices um, openly with, without any of the religious context or, or kind of historical backgrounds or uh, yeah. I call it cultural background as well to support them. That's very true. And in fact, I, I, I think, you know, if I'm in the role of making recommendations in this area, uh, I don't know that you need to go to uh, India to study meditation, but you should study meditation with a teacher, somebody who really understands the practice, understands the cultural context. We have wonderful meditation centers. There's a one called Spirit Rock. Yes. And the person who founded, Jack Cornfield, spent several years in Asia, Burma, and I think Thailand also, uh, as a monk, learning meditation. He then came back to the United States and got a doctorate in psychology mm -hmm. and has functioned in the past, not currently, he's retired, but uh, as, a, as a psychologist. Mm -hmm. So... Um, he can take these practices from Asia and move them into a Western contemporary context in a way which really still retains their efficacy, their importance. He's also able, he's written many books to translate some of the uh, cultural elements uh, into Western culture. So um, I, I do think that's important. You, you, can, you may not need the whole cultural context, but there are many good, very good teachers uh, who I think should be part of anyone's, uh, anyone who's taking up a mindfulness practice, I think should be working in some way with a teacher. And, there, you know, I don't want to be too rigid about it because like, I do think you can go on YouTube and listen to a mindfulness exercise and you're not putting yourself at risk. Um, and the but, same with yoga. But if you start to get these spiritual emergence or emergency experience, I think you need to speak to somebody <laughs> competent. Well, exactly, exactly. Because that there, there are now several articles on the um on negative outcomes from mindfulness I, I have a friend who says you know when you pray to god when you talk to god it's called prayers when god talks back it's called psychosis <laughs> right. so it's a it's a joke that he, he said but that, that that's sadly true of how it's been treated right now isn't it right so just like that you know a meditation teacher would know how to work with a spiritual emergency. Uh, Jack Cornfield has a case where somebody at, at Spirit Rock in the middle of a silent retreat uh, barged into the lunchroom, which where all these people are sitting there eating in silence. And he starts, you know, doing these karate moves and jumping around, telling everybody, I can see your chakras. I can tell what you're, you know, you know. Well, he had decided to stay up all night meditating, mm -hmm. which is not part of the protocol there. You get up, I've done retreats there. Uh, you know, you get up at around 6 a.m. and you are supposed to go back 
and sleep between 10 and 6. But he stayed up all night doing this. But, you know, if somebody starts doing acting that bizarrely in a conventional setting, somebody would call 911, the emergency number, and they would come with an ambulance and they would take them away, probably in handcuffs. Um, so instead, Jack Hornfield recognized that this was an outcome of this person, you know, being too zealous of a practitioner and getting into trouble. But instead of calling 911, he had two of his senior students escort that person out uh, and then had him jog to get rid of some of that energy, had him work in the garden to kind of get more grounded. They fed him a special diet of more um, grounding foods, including meat, which they don't serve there. Um, they had him take hot showers and stuff. So they, they, they got him grounded again using those kinds of techniques, not medication. Mm. So that he, you know, if he had done this on his own, which people do do, they just decide to do these kinds of things on their own. Uh, and he then started to do this in public, he would have been hospitalized and treated as having a psychotic episode. But instead, Jack Hornfield was able to work with him as having a spiritual emergency. Mm, that's excellent. That's, that's a really interesting uh, example. I think a lot of people going through these kind of experiences are at a loss. They, they, they're, first of all, they're right. scared to discuss it because once they discussed it, 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 it gets treated as a clinical case and, and, and they get hospitalized and medicated. So your work is really, really important to, to, to get this out there. I'm, I'm very happy to be able to have, get you on our show and to kind of share this message with our readers and listeners. We have an article come out uh, in this particular topic as well to give people more context and, and also information mm -hmm. to be able to access the links and, and, and do further research on their own. Thank you very much for, for um, accepting to uh, be interviewed for our podcast. Uh, and um, I really appreciate uh, your presence and your sharing of your knowledge uh, with us. Um, now. We've reached the end of our, the, our episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thank you for joining us. Connect us with uh, us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at our next episode. Thank you very much, Professor Nikos.